course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio, this is True Crime Uncensored with the decrepit Burl Bear, sequestered in his not-so-secret bunker. The following program is produced with much irritation and dyspepsia by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. I'm Mark Boyle, your erstwhile fat checker. Our guest today is Pat Craig, a rock and roll yeah, musician, a pastor, and now an author. Welcome back, Pat. Hey, welcome. Welcome to you. <laughs> They're all back. Even Sadak is back. Uh, I am the legendary Burl Bear, sequestered in my own home, a nightmare in my own life, due to this corona uh, six-pack virus that's going around. Being as if I'm as old as Pat, uh, I don't know Murray's age, but uh, old enough uh, that that's one of the factors, and well with the heart and lungs and all those other body parts that are so popular. I have to be locked away from mankind to not hurt them. But, well, we were uh, hoping we for a rubber room. Murray, Murray uh, I didn't write down your last name because I'll forget it. I don't read so well anymore. Still write books, just don't read. Uh, and you are apparently <laughs> tied in with Pat Craig. Uh, Pat used to be uh, in Walla Walla, Washington. He and I went to Wahai together and grade school together. He was my first co-host on the radio, the Wahai radio show. Little did I know he would go off to a career... Uh, as a rock and roll star or a starlet, one of the two, <laughs> and then get religion. But how did he wind up working with you, of all people? Well, Pat, by the way, my last name you can easily remember because it's it's Pura Vida. You, you remember the expression Pura Vida from Costa Rica, the pure yeah. life. Yeah. And it's used in Spanish, too. Raxa uh, pura, pura. Oh, there's all kinds of it. They use it to describe a uh, purebred, uh, thoroughbred racing horse and, and everything. But So think of Pura Vida, and then you'll remember me. But, yeah, Pat and I met, um, never, have never met in person, <laughs> even though he's not really that far away. He's in Idaho, and I'm in southwestern Alberta basically on on the border between Montana, Alberta, and British Columbia. And, and Pat is really only, I think he'd probably only be at the most four hours, but maybe even not that much dry. Maybe 12, I think. Yeah. I'm way, so we, I'm at the bottom. You're, oh, you're at the bottom. Oh, he's yeah. almost in, in Utah then. He's almost a Mormon. So uh, it's getting worse by the minute. <laughs> yeah. So we actually met because actually uh, I was approached by one of the publishers we were both working for at the time, and uh, they wanted me to. They wanted to to. Ha, ha, how should we put it? They they wanted Tone to try and deal with some. Of, there was all this combat in one of of Pat's books. It was an Amish fiction book. But part of it takes place in Guadalcanal, and there's some very vivid fighting scenes, but in that genre of Amish fiction, that's a no-no. Well, yeah, and, uh, and, Pat, and Pat's a bit of a rebel and didn't want to let go, uh, but he did agree to take any suggestions I had, which I don't even like doing this, 
my approach is unless somebody's making some really weird you know, like you can't write, you know, the, the sentences are disjointed, the paragraphs don't fit, there's no flow, I mean, those are the big things, right? So Pat has all the good things, so I'm really reluctant to try and tell a writer, oh, you know, don't write like Faulkner, don't write like Hemingway, or don't write like yourself, because I yeah, think that's these the things worst develop, writing like yourself, yeah. Well, these things develop as you read and write, and you develop your own styles, and, and we don't need to all sound the same, but there's a cookie-cutter mentality, as you know, everywhere in the world, and it's not just in, in writing, it's in music, it's in movies, it's in television, it's in reality, you know, so anyway, Pat and I worked on that, and I just said, well, probably a little less blood, and they'll be able to handle it, so uh, Pat made it a little bit more bloodless. And uh, they accepted it in the way it went. <laughs> and uh, so don't forget about Pat writing more bloodless. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat and I got to know each other from there. I realized we had a lot in common uh, in, in many areas. And uh, finally, you know, he's living in Idaho, right? And to me, Idaho uh, means Ernest Hemingway. It means uh, the Nick Adams stories. Uh, he's out in the and he's out fishing which Pat loves to do. He's, you know, Hemingway's character is out fishing all the time. And uh, he, in fact, two of his best stories are Big Two-Hearted River, part one and two, and all it entails is a guy going fishing and describing the whole thing. There's no gunfire, there's no romance with a, with a young lady, there's, there's no uh, wartime intensity. Um, it's just that. So, I mean, you know, so Pat had a lot. So eventually we got to the part where we said, well, let's see if we can do a book together and uh, let's see if that works or whether we kill each other and uh, in fact it's been it's, it's been very very easy very easy and in fact a number of readers cannot tell even though we are we have stylistic differences we have different approaches but but when we it's dovetailed so that people cannot tell who wrote which chapter very few people can do that. Uh, and that's not because they sound exactly the same, but they sound enough the same that unless they know our nuances and subtleties from reading a lot of our own works, they won't know. And that shows you how comfortable, comfortably we can work together. I think that's great because I have the exact same thing with uh, Frank C. Gerardo Jr. We've done uh, two and a half books together. We're <laughs> about to do another one. And we've never sat in the same room at the same time and written together. Uh, he writes stuff, says it to me. I write stuff, says it to him. And by the time the book comes out, it's just pretty much as you were saying. Yeah, it, it, it's, so it's actually been great. It way. Interestingly enough, when we started... Uh, we the first thing we tried was like a Brad Thor kind of genre thriller, and uh, called Valkyrie Force about a special forces team, and so we we got about fifteen chapters into that, and we said let's put this aside and let's try something uh, like more literary fiction. And then the interesting thing is when we went back to that book and looked at it, boy, we love it. And uh, so somewhere in the next several months, we're going to get back and do some slamming on Valkyrie Forest. Um, well, I find is, it fascinating that you guys write the Amish, Amish, however you pronounce it. I always get confused on that. Amish. You don't have to say it. Amish? You yeah. write that stuff, and then you turn around and write the Blood and Thunder war stuff. Uh, 
They won't let you have your uh, Amish go to war series, huh? Both of us have done it. Pat and I have both put Amish in military situations. Pat did it with his character in Guadalcanal, and I particularly did it. Well, I did it a couple of times. Once in the Civil War, American Civil War, I had them breaking away from their roots and fighting for the North. And in another one, I had him flying in World War I. Um, there's more to the story than that. But both Pat and I have pushed the envelope. And, you know, we still get sales. So it shows you that they're wrong to lock themselves down in a rigid formula for the Amish. But they're not alone. I mean, there's many genres where it's extremely rigid and you can't be creative. So, this is yeah. uh, Mark over here. Well, um, how do you how do you write uh, this this kind of material and keep it realistic? The language uh, is rather rough for the your target audience. Well, and we fight about it. We talked about it in depth. We thought, how gritty are we going to get with this? And so what we did was we talked to some military guys, and the military guys said. Because it's got to be authentic. It's got to be how the soldiers talk in the heat of battle. And so we put it in, and the interesting thing is we've given it as a beta. We, before we put it out, we gave it as beta to several ladies who loved it. They said, you know, I love realistic writing, and this is that. I mean, we didn't make it like you know, gross, you know, gross-out stuff, but we did use language that Marines would use when they were, you know, getting fired at by Nambus and mortars and, and having Japanese soldiers pouring through the trench at them. Pat, um, we both have set this in a context where there's still people talking to chaplains, you know, they're, they're still reading the Bible and trying to figure out life and war and what their face is, you know, and everything. And so it's not just uh, the rough combat and some, you know, uh, other marine-type things, but there's also... The, the face is not discarded. The You know, they're trying to figure out stuff in terms of God and the universe and war is not discarded. Uh, people praying isn't discarded. Um, so it's in the whole big context. Yeah, guys, and I, you, uh, I went to uh, the World Mystery Convention. It's called BoucherCon. They have that just about every year, although this year it's been postponed due to virus. But uh, they had an entire section on Christian mysteries. It was authors who wrote what they call Christian mysteries. And I thought it was a little confusing. Because when I, so much as Christian mysteries, I think transubstantiation. So I, I had to get it back. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just thinking there's so many Christians that have written in that genre. Uh, Dorothy Sayers is one, G.K. Chesterton, and his father Brown, which they put on television, as you know, they put it on the, right. the screen, and that's been a very popular series. So those are just two examples. I, I think it's just people get mixed up. They think if you say... Pat's going to write a Christian book. It means it's all going to be about taking communion and, and having parking lot conversions before Pat enters the church building. And, and, and you know, that, that it's all about, you know, it's all about a kind of, oh, this is the, this lifestyle and it has to be, you can't do this and you can't do that. Whereas 
to us, it's more like we have a belief system. Everybody has one, right? Even those who say, I don't have anything. Well, everybody has one. And and we come with a, a growing, I think. Mine, I would certainly describe mine as an entrepreneur with two. You keep growing, you keep learning, you keep developing. But from this worldview, uh, which is an open universe, there, that, that it's not just, oh, it's only a material world. We think there's more than the material world. And, and that's part of a Christian worldview or or universe or a cosmic view and you bring that with you but that that's everything like if people haven't read the bible they don't know how rough it is that's a rough book this is this is not something where it's all laid out neatly like it can be in a church well these are the seven things we believe and i mean people are getting stabbed through the guts they're getting yeah. tent pegs driven through their skull um there, there's all kinds that's, of mayhem that's not, that's not a good way to go camping i never recommend <laughs> <laughs> well you don't go camping with someone named jael okay <laughs> yeah. so, uh, happy well, and, and here's the other thing about world war ii um, in that era, in that age, America definitely had a Christian worldview. And the soldiers who went to fight for America, most of them, or they were dealing with the issues of, you know, if my Bible tells me not to kill, why am I killing this guy? You know, why am I beating, yeah. him, beating him to death with, a, with, a, with my poop shovel? You know, because that's the only weapon I got left. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we're dealing with the gritty, the gritty stuff, and but we have to put it in the context of an America that was definitely had a had a Christian worldview or an outlook on the, on all things. You know, I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that is that it was after World War II that the phrase Judeo-Christian was invented. Uh, it was a way to try to bootstrap on the Jews back in as if, well, you know, sorry about the Holocaust, so we sent all those people back to Germany, we'll kind of strap your name onto this, we'll call it the Judeo-Christian ethic or something. Yeah, but that right. wasn't until after World War II. Exactly. Well, you got Jewish mysteries, too. They got, uh, so Saturday the rabbi uh, did this, Sunday the rabbi did that. Yeah, there was that old series. That's an old series. I guess that's from the 60s. Uh, or whenever, yeah, it's just, you know, Saturday the rabbi slept late and, and all those. I've never read them. They might be fun if they bring in enough Jewish stuff to make it interesting. I think that's what people do. They want to, well, how's a priest going to solve these mysteries? And they also did a series called, uh, it's in book and on television, about Brother Cadfael. He's a monastic. Yeah. Oh, about 1,000, right? Those were quite, of course, they're very, very well done. Uh, um, but, uh, again, he was a monastic who worked in with the herbs. So he was the healer, right? And uh, always trying in these poultices and, and different, uh, you know, things on people when they were sick. But he was also solving murder mysteries. So, I, you know, when if we wanted to take the time, which we're not, but I, we could say, okay, well, what, war is one of the great themes of literature. Okay, there's romance is another one, love stories, you know, uh, epics. Uh, family sagas that cover many generations. Um, you know, all kinds of genres are important within what we call literary. But some of the greatest works have been about war. You know, even if we just talk about your American writers, uh, Hemingway wrote a lot about the First World War. And he was on the Italian front. And, you know, that's his, uh, you know, farewell to arms, you know. 
Um, you've got Norman Mailer, The Naked and the Dead. You got James Jones, and uh, I think he's the one that wrote The Thin Red Line. Uh, and I'm, I can't remember who wrote uh, From Here to Eternity, but I think it was Gaines that wrote uh, the one about uh, the mutiny on board a ship uh-huh. and the Second World War. I mean, it's just it's just a genre because it, it, it's even though right now you might have people saying, "Well, you know, I'm not too comfortable with it." And I remember hearing two guys when I was working out at the gym a few years ago, and they were debating how war was out of fashion. It was obsolete. You couldn't do anything. I just I didn't want to interrupt them in their little daydreams, but I was going to say there'll be war until this is all over. You know, you may think it's obsolete and maybe it'd be nice if we didn't have to resort to it, but there will always be people that will use war to get what they want because they can get what they want. Franco won his civil war and he was the bad guy. And he was the fascist with Nazi planes practicing their bombing techniques in preparation for a Holocaust. They're about to inflict on the free world that we didn't either we didn't see it coming but I don't I think we did and we did, did our leaders just didn't want to deal with it because we'd already well, had World War One twenty years. <laughs> yeah, oh I know. I know, but I mean like the bad guys win but they use it. War it's gonna be here. It's and, and you have to try and understand. You have to try to write about it. Just because a person fights in a war doesn't mean they're a bad person. I mean, nobody wants to take the alternative. Okay, you don't resist. Right? You let them do whatever they want. What do they do? Well, they come in, they rape, they murder, they enslave, they, 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 they do what the Nazis did with the concentration camps. You know, and and so you get left with what are you going to do? It's between the devil and the deep blue sea, right? Uh, yeah. and you get these guys going into combat saying, God, what do we do? But we have to fight. If we don't fight, we lose. And then what does losing look like? Well, we know what losing looks like because we saw what the Japanese did to the places they conquered and how they treated the Chinese. Uh, never mind what the Germans were doing in Europe, right? Oh, so you realize what I think is interesting is is uh, the uh, the Nazis invaded Norway and they occupied Norway. And yes. I was married for almost thirty years to a nice Norwegian girl, and so I had all these Norwegian relatives uh, who lived through that. And I said, what I want to know is, here you have these Nazis, right, running the country, living in your home. Uh, you know, the SS took over their farmhouse and all this, and it wasn't pleasant at all. All of a sudden, they get a telegram. The war's over, you lost. Right? So now they have to surrender to the people they were occupying. I said, what about the soldiers, the German soldiers, the guys who were forced to go out there and fight these wars on behalf of the Nazis, you know, drafted, put out there? What was their response when they found out that they lost the war? And the answer was, oh, they were ecstatic. They were thrilled. Most of them didn't go back. They just stayed in Norway and married Norwegian girls and tried to put it all behind. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. They- so you've got a whole bloodline of German-Norwegian from yeah. the Second World War. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, in the book that, we're, that we just put out, it's called Far on the Ringing Plains, and it features three guys that grew up in the Mennonite faith. So the first guy goes to war because he's been sexually molested in a church and the church covered it up. So he says, okay, I'm going to go, and it's... And Pearl well, you're breaking up real bad there, Pat. Oh, I'm sorry to say you break it up real bad. Uh, Burry, do you know the plot of this book? 
Pat just wanted to relate, I, I, and I'll just want to say quickly, the reason it's called Far on the Ringing Plains, that's a line from Tennyson's poem Ulysses, where he's basically talking about the Trojan War, and Ulysses or Odysseus, who is, uh, you know, uh, there's that two-part book, The Iliad and The Odyssey, Odyssey and uh, The Odyssey is about Ulysses or Odysseus and his journey, you know, to, Tro to Troy and back from Troy, and that... We're, the, the guys have this poem. They, they're fascinated by it, and, and they keep referring back to it in terms of their island fighting that they're involved in. But yes, like, like Pat was saying, they're Mennonites. Uh, Pat's character has, has experienced a molestation. The church covered it up. He's full of rage. He's, uh, he's basically, you know, what we'd say PTSD, and he hasn't got anything to do with it, so he takes it into combat. And then, uh, you know, you've got the other character. One character doesn't fight. He's Mennonite, too, but he's your, he's your medic. No, but he's not a medic because in, the Marines are called corpsmen, and that's a naval term, and, you know, the, the Navy and the Marines are, are quite connected. And then, so he doesn't use a weapon, but the other two, even though they're from Mennonite backgrounds, do. So you've got this juxtaposition where two of them are fighting and killing, and, and the other one is the one trying to heal them all uh, and send, you know, these guys home alive. So that's the dynamic. And uh, um, it, it, it's, it's fascinating to work with, right? Because you don't, you know, for Billy, it's a really hard time on Guadalcanal. He's killing humans for the first, well, none of them have killed humans before. But, you know, he's killing a lot of them because he's a sniper and uh, he's one of the best shots, so he's in combat a lot. And he's having a lot, he goes from one chaplain to the other. He goes to the Catholic chaplain, he goes to the Protestant, he goes to the rabbi, you know, trying to figure this all out. Uh, he reads the Bible and he prays, but it, it's hard because after Guadalcanal, not in this book, but in the one to come, comes Tarawa, one of the worst battles of American arms in three days, you know, of savagery. And then Saipan was just as bad or worse because they lost as many each week as they lost in Tarawa for the whole three days. So oh boy. these guys, these guys are in a meat grinder and, uh, and, and their souls are in a meat grinder. And Billy changes, but so does Johnny, that's his Pat's character. And, and so does Bud, the corpsman. Like they all three have their chapters, right? Like you're gonna, you read the book and it tells you, okay, like, hey, this is gonna be a focus on Johnny in this chapter. You flip over, well, it's Bud talking. He's the only one that talks in the first person. He's kind of like, uh, you know, if this was a Greek drama, you know, he, he's the kind of a voiceover and something like this kind of explaining what's going like trying to analyze everything trying to figure it out tells you what the other guys are doing what's happening in the bigger picture and what he's struggling with and then you have the chapters on on billy and uh, his you know when you're focusing on billy well it's not the same as johnny they're, they're two different people even though yeah, you're gonna have their friendship people, uh, going to have totally disparate responses and reactions to these horrific scenes my uh, newsman at uh, KOL radio uh, went off to the war, and he came back from the war, and he was never the same. Uh, no. It haunted him forever, and what he did in the war haunted him forever, and he finally took his own life because he couldn't deal with it anymore. Uh, mm. How terrible. Uh, and, this uh, is uh, Mark over here in the, uh, <clears throat> the Lighten Up Lounge. Oh, can you, uh, for, the, for our listeners, what's the, uh, what are some of the differences between Mennonites and Catholicism in general? 
Oh, man. The Mennonites are pacifists, traditionally, right? They're, they're, they're like the Amish, the Mennonites, the Quakers. Uh, uh, there's a number of different traditions, not always Christian, um, and not always based in a, in a God view, but they are pacifists, right? And they, they don't bear arms. They're not supposed to. I mean, a lot of things have changed since the Second World War. I've met a lot of Mennonites who aren't like that and a lot that are. But for these guys, they're coming from those backgrounds. You know, Billy's background is uh, his father's a, a Mennonite pastor. They're pacifists. They, they are conscientious objectors. They can get out of the fighting by claiming that, right? And, and Johnny's coming from that background, too, and so is Bud. But for different reasons, two of them are breaking from their roots completely. They are not going to be pacifists. They will fight. They will take human life, and of course, that is cutting them off from their tradition and their families. Um, Billy has no relationship left with his father. Johnny's relationships are a complete mess. And, and Bud, we're just not sure of. He hardly ever talks about his family. But, uh, you know, he, again, is not going to be cut off from the traditions because he's a healer, right? He's a medic. He's a corpsman. Uh, you know, he's out there trying to put bodies together. So you've got three different uh, things. But basically, that's kind of, you know, besides the fact that Mennonites are, you know, strong Christians, they believe in the Bible and, and all the typical uh, Christian doctrines, but the added element is that, that, that pacifism. Do you, do you, did you guys feel pressured? to make the material more realistic? Or less. I, I, I wouldn't say we were pressured, would you, Pat? I would say we no. believe in it. We believe in, in we're, okay, we're really tired of the non-realism that we've experienced in the Christian book industry, okay? They put rose-colored glasses on everything. They, they pretty up everything. They make faith like a dreamboat. You know, like a cruise in the cabin. There's nothing about struggle, doubt, <laughs> nothing. No, it, it's all cheap. And then they, they do that with a lot of fiction groups. And it's not just them. I don't want to just pick on them. It's just very strong there. But it's strong in a lot of other groups where everything gets dumbed down, watered down. And, and, and Pat and I are both saying we want it to be real. We want the faith to look real, their struggle to believe to look real, the ups and downs of anybody's life to be real, and the war. You can't prettify war. People try to, you can't prettify war, okay? So it doesn't mean you have to, you know, be completely blatant about everything, but, you know, people die. You know, a lot of people die. And America should know that better than anybody. You're still dying. You know, yeah, you're still dying in these conflicts. You still have these people. Now it's men and women coming home, you know, in, 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 in coffins. And you, you, can't, you can't help people appreciate the kind of courage it takes to fight in something like that when your friends are getting killed all around you and you're trying to hang on and make it mean something, that the sacrifices, the heroism, the, the death. You, you can't make yeah. that real. But, and even more horrible sometimes is just the way that guys get wounded and they live, but they're like wrecked, you know, arms blown off, legs blown off, you know, lower jaw shot away. Am I breaking up now? Just a little. Not too bad. You're not too okay. bad. Keep, keep going. So we, 
you, you look at the opening scene in Saving uh, Private Ryan when they're going ashore on uh, Omaha Beach, and that's what it's like in battle all the time, you know. And so we have to deal with that. We have to present that. We have to give that to people so that they go, oh, my goodness, you know. <laughs> and uh, pulled back just a little. So on, on these, uh, you know, so say war books, whatever the genre you call that, uh, is, are these published by the same company that published your Amish stuff? Or did you go independent no. on this? We did. We went independent. We started our own publishing company called Islands Publishing. And we have nine books planned, Burl. We have three books in the Island series, which is Far on the Ringing Plains, The Scepter in the Isle, and Men Who Fought with Gods. And then the next series is going to be uh, called Jungles, and it's about the, the, the next generation of our heroes who fight in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And then the third series will be Deserts, and that's, of course, the grandsons and granddaughters of these guys who fight in these conflicts. Well, that sounds fascinating. But if you're for family saga fans, you know that's a uh, yeah, really quite fascinating. And they'll refer they'll refer back to the other characters. You know, Granddad will be someone that you would know when they were young men fighting in the Pacific, right? You know, and Dad would be somebody. Well, we read about Dad. You know, because he was in, uh, he, he, he was at Kisan, or he was fighting in the Tet Offensive, right? And, and so now you bring us up today to Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, you know, Syria, where whatever will decide in the end, you know, they're going to be, sometimes they'll be fighting ISIS, other times the Taliban, um, sometimes, you know, uh, just regular uh, forces of the nation they're in. But yeah, you, 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 you realize that, that this is, for some families, this isn't even a isn't even a fiction, right? There are Americans who fought in the Second World War, and then their sons fought in Vietnam, and then this, their sons or grandsons fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. So you know, we're just trying to make it real. And the, the big difference is, of course, once Pat and I get to the modern era, we have uh, young women fighting and dying in combat situations, which, you know, had not really happened before unless someone yeah, disguises those. I don't think women should die in combat. <laughs> I don't think men should either. I think there is. Even when I was a kid, I'd watch war movies, which I really can't stand to watch anymore. Uh, it never made sense to me. I could not see the uh, connection or correlation between uh, international rivalries, policies, and sending groups of people to kill other groups of people. It doesn't have anything to do with the validity of the concepts of the doctrines. I, I saw no correlation or no connection between violent killing of people and establishment of the doctrines or theories of governance or whatever. It just didn't make any sense. I still don't think it makes any sense. It's like I can't comprehend the relationship between crime and punishment. Uh, I can understand locking people up to uh, keep them away from us, right, because their behavior is so reprehensible, and to protect us. But the concept of, of punishment uh, just I don't see how that makes you know, uh, the non-punitive model always seems to work better 
you've done this long enough. Our guys aren't cardboard. They 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 struggle with the killing. But I mean, this is a a, an age old debate, right? Um, But I'll tell you, if you're a Jew in a concentration camp in 1944, oh yeah, you want them to come. You want the Allies to get there before you're the next person getting shoveled in. So there's there's no quarrels about policy and nuances like that. I mean, this is this is a, a evil demagogue who used his racism to promote uh, a complete uh, desire to a complete genocide of a race of people. And they don't sit down and negotiate. Franco doesn't sit down and negotiate. Mao Zedong doesn't sit down and negotiate. You know, Stalin doesn't sit down and negotiate. They they tell you what they want and you do it or they will crush you. And the only choice you have left is either to be crushed or to resist. And it's just, yeah, you might argue about some of the modern wars, you know, why, you know, should you have been in Iraq? Should we be? Well, I know that Afghanistan was because that's where the training camps were of the people that perpetrated 9-11. Now, most of them were Saudis, but they were trained in Afghanistan. So it wasn't just, well, we're going to go to Afghanistan. That was, we got to wipe out those camps. And it's, you know, as you know, it was a long fight because you have a whole philosophy out there saying we expand this faith to force if necessary. We will do it. So you have to decide whether you're a resistor, whether you're spawning this stuff or resisting this stuff. But I just know that if I was in a camp in 1944-45, I'd want either the Russians to get there fast or the Allies to get there fast because if they didn't, I was dead. Well, it's interesting. I just watched a documentary the other night on uh, the KCET, whatever, uh, about Auschwitz and people in the uh, the camp awaiting liberation. And uh, the liberators got there, but he said it wasn't a, it wasn't what they were hoping for. There was just about rape and pillage and uh, etc. by the rescuers, as it were, by the. Uh, yeah. Well, the Russian the Russian army liberated Auschwitz. Um, yeah. Ike was not going to let that happen with the camps that the Allies liberated, right? You know, and and Ike is the one with those famous lines, right? He said, "Get it down on film, get it in photographs and film, because 50 years from now they're going to say it never happened." That's right. And he was, he was prescient, right? You got the whole deny denial movement saying oh that was all fabricated it never really happened you know the the camps were all put up uh they're fake camps that eisenhower and the russians put up you know and da 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 so uh, it's it, no it's a complex thing my friend you know it's a very complex and 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 pat and i do not have characters that are so patriotic that they can't see uh the pain but there's no question they also recognize that war makes them more savage they they know that they they know it's changing them from the boy who you know did roundups in Montana to the boy who who has to kill with his bare hands in Saipan. They know that they're they're not the same people. And it's just like you just said, this poor man you mentioned who couldn't get rid of it and killed himself. Well, we know that's still an issue because both in Canada and the U.S. we have all these suicides of those who have fought in the Mideast and they can't get free. Uh, it, it's uh, one of our female readers said her father told her, he was a World War II vet, and he just said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
and and you know and and even though he wouldn't talk about it 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 haunted him what he had to do to stay alive uh it haunted him what he had to see his friends had to do to stay in life um and it haunted him to see what happened to his friends as, yep. as well as the enemy you know that the, de the dehumanizing that happens and we don't run away from that we're not you know there's heroism in the book and and you know we're fighting for our country but after all you realize they're really fighting to save each other and, and right. they they recognize they recognize that they're paying a price in their in their souls in their body i mean this is this is real. One of, yeah, one of the issues that we deal with. Am I breaking up or how am I doing? You're you doing a little bit, but keep going. Uh, one of the issues we deal with is that one of our guys has a, a Japanese American kid who loves America. One of the discussions they have is does being a Jap depend solely on the color of your skin, or is it what's going on in your heart and your head? You know that makes you what we call quote unquote a jab, you know, and so the difference between this American kid who joins the the army and goes and fights in Italy and becomes uh, in one of the decorate, most decorated divisions of the whole U.S. Army is these Japanese boys who love America, and so what's the, and so these guys have to see that they're not fighting against a, a guy. We have to have yellow skin. They're fighting against that part issue, the issue of what makes a person uh, a, a demagogue, a, a, a horrible conqueror, as opposed to is it the color of his skin or is it the issues of the heart? And so you that's a good point there. My father, uh, who escaped from uh, Russia at the time of the revolution. Uh, was living, you know, and he would never talk about his childhood. Never, he would refuse to talk about it. So we take him to see Fiddler on the Roof. We go, was it like that, Dad? He go, it was exactly like that, except a hell of a lot worse, and nobody was singing. <laughs> so, oh boy! We get trying oh, to get boy. Up, and he'd never talk about it. Well, my in-laws came to visit one time, and it was raining out, so we weren't going out fishing. We were sitting around talking, and my father-in-law says to my dad, "Hey, Dave." You never told us how you escaped from Russia. And we all just, you know, because my dad would never talk about it. And he just right. stops for a second, looks up, takes a big deep breath, goes, well, it was like this. And for the first time, he told the story of how he, at seven years old, how he escaped and what he went through before he escaped. And it was just mind-numbingly horrible. The things he witnessed, the things he experienced. And I just got to add one, one more little personal story here. Uh, my sister came to me one day. We were all home in Walla Walla at the family house, and she says, "Hey, Burl, did you ever notice that we've never had a fire in the fireplace?" I said, "My God, you're right. We have this lovely fireplace, a fireplace, you know, thingies there, mm -hmm. and there's never been a fire in the fireplace." She says, "Go ask Dad why not." I was going to ask, but Mom always said, don't ask. So by, by creative ignorance, I go to Dad and say, Dad, why is it that all these years there's never been a fire in the fireplace? And he smiles and says, I'll tell you. He says, every day I wake up and I go out and I look in the living room. And if that fireplace is so cold and there hasn't been a fire in it, it's another day of victory.
one more day I didn't have to huddle next to the fire to stay alive. Wow. That's exactly why we write as we do. I want to tell those stories. Those stories need to be told. We can't just have people reading, you know, dumbed down to grade eight writing that makes everything like, oh, what a love, you know, that, that music, oh, what a lovely war. You know, it wasn't a lovely war. I mean, yes, I know there were friendships made, heroism was done, things were stopped that needed to be stopped, but, you know, the 60 million dead, Worldwide in the Second World War, you know, um, you you wish it could have been worked out, but you can't. (laughs) We all know the long story. Try to talk to the the dictators. The dictators aren't interested in anything but their conquests, and they have, you know, they unleash. Like Captain Crunch, like Captain Crunch says about sharks, you can't reason with them. No, you can't read. Well, you can't. Well, if they have an agenda and they they're going to push it, like Franco, like Mussolini, like Adolf Hitler, you know, like Stalin, they're going to push it, and that's all there is to it. And and yeah, I know everybody wants to have this little story. Well, you know, it, it, yeah, all the uniforms were always clean, and the beautiful women, the waves, and the wax that drove the jeeps around with the commanding officers. It was just a pleasant little war. Well, oh yeah, my, you know, real my father wouldn't talk about it either, Merrill. We're we're talking about the uh, realism in the uh, to tell a story. I have a couple. I had a cousin uh, that lived Full Metal Jacket in its entirety. He mm-hmm. was he was uh, he went to uh, to that location for basic training, uh, and he was there. Uh, as an S and D team, uh, early reconnaissance, search and destroy. Uh, if during the Tet Offensive, he lived that entire experience. Uh, and I asked him um, if he if he saw the film. And um, in all the years that I knew him, this was the only time I saw fear. Um, uh, he just turned his head and said I lived it exactly as depicted in the film and that was the last we talked about it. Um, I have living uh, relatives that are survivors of um, and I've, uh, uh, several of them have written uh, books on their experiences, others haven't. Uh, my best friend from childhood, his father spent 6 to 12 uh, going from camp to camp with an SS officer. Um, because uh, another, uh, uh, somebody else at the camp grabbed him and took him in the line where you, where you didn't get a J to your tattoo. Huh. Um, my, and, uh, my uncle Gordon was in the uh, uh, Allied troops that liberated some of the camps. And that, right, of course, you imagine what the lasting uh, impression on him. Years later, he was walking in New York. And a man ran up to him in tears and grabbed him and started hugging him and kissing him. He goes, what the hell is this all about? He goes, you're the one who cut the barbed wire and beat me at the camp. Yeah. I could never forget mm. your face. There you were, minding your own business, doing whatever it was you were doing. That was, I don't know, browbeating people with holy scriptures or something. Suddenly <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he had a divine revelation. I think I'll become a award-winning best-selling author, which is well, well that my story must not have been of interest to anyone. <laughs> so, uh, 
Well, what happened? Remember, like, what happened to you? Why, why did you decide to do something as foolish as become an author? Oh, I couldn't help that, I don't think, any more than, than Pat could. I was writing stories at eight, nine years old, you know, and, and I remember putting them on index, three by five index cards. It was foolish, it was impulsive. And uh, my first story was published in the United States when I was 14. Um, so it was it was always there. It, I think it was that. It's just like some people feel born to be whatever, a doctor, lawyer, uh, career soldier, or they feel driven to fly, you know, or they, they want to be uh, an athlete in a certain discipline. Um, you know, they always want to be on horses and to question. So it was there. It was there from the beginning. And uh, in terms of anything to do with, uh, I should just explain, because you're not going to know, Pat knows, but they're not going to know that, Two of my uncles were in the United States Navy. In fact, we had all kinds of families. My brother lives in Santa Fe. It is like, uh, uh, my niece lives in Los Angeles. I have two cousins, first cousins. Because we had two grandfathers, and, and one chose to go to Winnipeg, which is that time in Manitoba, the boom town. And oh, uh, you know, I have family on both sides, and we had a grandfather that went to Chicago and L.A., Another one who stayed in Canada, and that's where our family is. You can imagine when one time a guy called me a foreigner when I was working in the United States because he was mad at me over something, and he said, you foreigner, he's lucky to still be alive. <laughs> so uh, oh, you, can't, you can't think of a worse insult to put on me when I have family who have been in American uniform than to call me, who is their blood relation, a foreigner. Um, no, you know what I mean? That's just, I think any other country wouldn't matter, but we have been yoked at that border forever, and it's just not going to happen. So that's why I'm writing with that, not an issue. Uh, I, even as a teenager, I knew about the Pacific War. I read all about uh, battles like Guadalcanal. And no, see, I still can't watch war movies. It's just... Uh do you gentlemen have uh, any any uh, favorite war films? Me or them? Uh, no, the our guests. <laughs> any favorite war films? Or that? Well, for realism, Saving Private Ryan. Interesting. Uh, I thought the uh, first the first part of the movie was fabulous. The rest of it sucked. Really. Yeah, just it just didn't hold up. Neither does uh, Platoon hold up. But uh, Full Metal Jacket holds up for me. Um, I love yeah, World one. War II, the old movies. Uh, you know, uh, Run Silent, Run Deep. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Otto Preppinger's uh, In Harm's Way with John Wayne always gets me to watch the three hours. Uh, the Big Red One is one of my favorites for uh, yeah. for telling the truth. It's Sam Fuller, right? Yeah. Um, Pat, why don't you tell us about the Marionette Queen, which came out? Uh, okay, explain what the Marionette Queen is. Uh, uh, one of his Amish. Oh, Mennonite Queen. Yeah. So uh, oh, what's the bad. what's the? This is the last of uh, of a three volume uh, storyline. Right. So uh, what's uh, what what is the what what are we gonna gonna read in this particular? Uh, novel. Well, you're going to read the story of a Polish princess who runs away with her 
uh, Anabaptist state boy. And they end up in uh, Münster, Germany, which is the site of uh, the Anabaptist Revolution, uh, where these guys had not yet learned to be nonviolent, and they took over a whole city and were uh, summarily dispatched by the Catholics. Yeah, um, how, when, when you do your writing, how do you, um, how do you deal with the dichotomy of religion as a tenant and how, on occasion, humans practice it uh, in ways that are essentially evil? Well, are you back, Murray? Yeah, I just got back. Did you have a nice trip? <laughs> yes, yeah, so how do, yeah, how do you, you deal with that? Yeah, go ahead. So how, how do you, you deal, deal with, with that dichotomy? dichotomy? Yeah, the, the, of, uh, how to have the religious characters or the religious protagonists or antagonists are antagonistic, or sometimes the way the uh, uh, the faith is practiced is uh, the exact opposite of what's taught. Uh, right. Do these issues get dealt with? Yeah, faith, uh, there, there's a lot of things that are done in the name of Christianity that aren't Christian. Yeah, manifest yes, destiny comes to mind. And so, that's true of any religion. That's true of any religion. Right. And it's true of atheism, too. And so there's there's always a dichotomy, uh, because it's very rare to find someone who truly practices all the tenets of their faith uh, in a way that, uh, that would be pleasing to their Lord or to the to the God that they serve, because uh, uh, unfortunately they're also human. And so they have these issues, these human issues, and basically it's because most people have parts of them that are broken. And and that comes from their childhood, their situation, their environment. You know, guys that came back from the war, they're broken, like you said. He came back and he was never the same. And he finally he killed himself. Well, why did he do that? Because he couldn't reconcile uh, what should have been the truth about how people should live together with what he saw. And so there's always a dichotomy like that. Always. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, uh, the Mennonite Queen has uh, so much rich detail from that time period. How much time did it take you to write? How much research did you have to do? Oh, well, Murray and I are both history buffs. And so the fun part of doing a book like The Mennonite Queen or Part of the Ringing Plains is, is the research. You know, you have to find out, like, exactly what weapons they use. You have to find out, uh, you know, what was going on? Who who was who? Who were the historical figures that were happening? Right. Uh, yeah, it, it's not hard to do that if you're a history nut. Uh, do you know who James Burke's James Burke is? Uh, he did uh, yeah. the, the the day the universe changed history history from a perspective of the people yeah, involved and back in. what was going on at the time instead of just memorizing dates. Always, I always enjoyed that presentation of, uh, of history. Burrow! What's next? Magic Red Animals and Demons of Dickens, live from the lines of Lounge at OutlawRadioLive.com. Want some bar?
You. 